Well, good morning. This is what happens when people know I'm the first speaker. Yeah, let's go on a hike. And maybe we'll get there in, in time for the meeting. It's okay. My therapist will help me through the rejection later. I um, appreciate uh, Heather's shoulder that I'll cry upon for most of the afternoon, but that's okay. Uh, we're, uh, we're thankful that uh, those are here are here, and we're, and we're grateful. Uh, for those who may not have been here yesterday, we do have handouts for you. Uh, my lovely assistant is uh, walking by. Uh, please uh, give him due uh, grace and love, and he is going to uh, bring you a handout. So if you need a handout, just uh, keep your hand up for another minute or two. Um, that's your exercise for the day, and uh, Sam will bring one to you. While the handouts, there's a couple here, a few in the front, and one over there, bro. Thank you. While that's happening, um, let's turn to the book of Luke, please. I know that our focus of our discussion this morning is going to be the book of Jeremiah, uh, for those who were here yesterday, and we'll quickly review that. But I'd like to read a few verses uh, regarding our Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 19, uh, which I think give us tremendous insight into the heart of Jeremiah, despite the fact Jeremiah of course, chronologically predated the Lord Jesus, we see a tremendous connection between these two individuals and very similar in their ministry. Some of you have known, have heard me speak uh, several times. I apologize for that, for those who have had to hear me a lot, but uh, whether it was at Claremont or here and other places, I have a tremendous love for Bible geography. And one of the things I would suggest you do as you study the Word of God, that you not just uh, quickly skip over the location of events in the Scripture, but that you actually take note of them. Because the Lord isn't just putting that extra words in there for filler or for background. You know, when you, when you write a story or, or when you um, uh, read a story or, or a movie, you know, the setting is very important. But very often the setting is just a trigger point to, to start the, the event or to start the show. But when the Lord tells us where things occur, they, they're there for a very particular and distinct reason. There are things that you and I would never have connected together in the Bible. But they're connected because of their location. And there are, I I think, innumerable truths that we don't fully grasp because we just skip over and say, oh, that happened to occur in Gibeon? Okay, big deal. Well, that's a good example, actually. Gibeon is a really important uh, study in God's Word. I don't want to get us off topic. I haven't even started yet. But And you know I like going down these little rabbit holes, but I do find my way back. But some of you, I'm sure, have heard me speak about the Gibeonites. I think that's a marvelous story. Here are a group of people that pretended to be someone that they weren't. Do you remember that story? And, and, and they dressed up, and they got old shoes, and, and they got old bread, and, and they, they, they came to Joshua because they were kind of next in line. They were only four miles away. They were next in line to get destroyed when Joshua and the people of God had made it into the promised land. And, and, and so they pretended that they were from afar off. Why? Because they knew God's word. There was something they knew of the Lord's people, and they knew that the Lord had, t- had told their people to take care of strangers and foreigners that come from away. Just like you've been so gracious to us as hosts and hostesses this week. 
And so they pretended like they were from afar off and they, you know, they, they, as I like to say, they won all the Academy Awards that year, you know, uh, they, they, they came and they were sweating and alas, it's been such a long hike all the way to Nevada Falls and back where we're, we're exhausted because uh, we know that's a long hike. And, uh, and, and they pretended and they had, they had holes in their, in their shoes and they had moldy bread. And people often criticized Joshua because he said, all right, well, we'll make a peace treaty with you. And he made a peace treaty with them, only to find out later that they were only a few miles away. But just before you start condemning Joshua, note what, note what happened to these people. Ultimately, when it was found out, they made a little peace treaty, and, and they had a provision. They said, okay, well, you, you got us. We're, we're, we're not going to kill you, but from now on, you're going to chop wood for us, and you're going to draw water for us. You're going to be hewers of wood and drawers of water. Listen, if door number one is death and door number two is chopping some wood, and we learned last night that you can get a little Kevlar thing to protect your leg from, from getting a kickback from, the, uh, uh, from your device um, and drawing some water, like I'll take door number two, right? But it was much more than that, wasn't it? If you look carefully as you're reading your Bible later, you found that the very ark of God, the very dwelling place of the Lord, was in Gibeon. And if you're going to have offerings and sacrifices to the Lord there at the tabernacle, you need a lot of wood and you need a lot of water. So here are a group of people that should have been destroyed by virtue of their proximity to the Lord's people, should have been destroyed because of their rejection of the Lord. But now instead of that, they're doing the very opposite. Because of someone named Joshua, they find themselves participating in the worship of the holy God of heaven. Do you know anybody else like that? God bless those Gibeonites and God bless Joshua for rescuing them. It's a good thing I'm not in charge. I probably would have had them destroyed. It's a good thing the Lord's in charge, or else you would have been destroyed. So the location of events, that's a long way of giving the introduction, just one tiny event in the Scripture, but there are literally hundreds of them. Here we come to an event where the Lord Jesus weeps. There are three explicit times in the Scripture where we see the Lord weeping. Weeping over Jerusalem here. Weeping, of course, at the uh, grave of Lazarus or near the grave of Lazarus. And then, of course, weeping, calling, crying out, uh, uh, weeping at the Mount of Olives prior to his suffering and crucifixion. And if you look into it geographically, they're actually all connected indeed to the Mount of Olives, which is not a surprise that it would be a place that we hear about weeping. I had the privilege of being in Spain a few weeks ago and uh, was able to re-enjoy olives. I hadn't had olives in a long time. Uh, what makes olives good? Well, they taste good, but the olive oil that comes from them, and it's no surprise that Gethsemane literally means the olive press. And then where there where he was pressed, those tears flowed. And it touches me, and I hope it touches you, that the Lord Jesus shed genuine tears. He didn't shed fake tears. You know when people feign crying or actors and actresses can do it for their movie parts. But he shed genuine tears. 
at Lazarus' grave. He shed genuine tears in advance of his suffering. But here, look where he sheds tears. Luke 19, 41. And when he was come near, and you can go back and and find out exactly where he was, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee around, and keep thee on every side, and shall lay thee even in the ground, and thy children with thee, within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you together as a hen doth gather her chicks, but ye would not. People aren't saved because the Lord doesn't want to save them. He wants to save them. But they would not. It's ironic, isn't it? Again, a whole other subject for you to study. And sometimes when we, when we read the Gospels, we really get into reading, and this is again the same theme of this week, we get into reading sections that we don't notice the context on either side. This is particularly true of the Gospel of John. Because the chapter divisions in the Gospel of John are, are helpful, but sometimes hurtful for you to note the message. Very often notice the last few verses of one chapter and the first few verses of another actually are connected, but we just naturally stop at the end of a chapter. So here you might read this story and not, and not recognize the connection that the very next sentence is, and he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein. This is the backdrop to him dealing with what they had done to make his father's house a house of, house of usury. But here the Lord Jesus sheds genuine tears over the rejection of his people of himself. And as we come to think about this character of Jeremiah, that side of Jeremiah is much more like the Lord Jesus than any of the prophets that we're going to deal with this week. I'm not saying Jeremiah is, is, is uh, better than any of the prophets. No, they all had their role and their modality. We needed the Elijahs. <laughs> we need the John the Baptist types, as it were. It tells us again of the beautiful, we had a discussion last night with the young people about the diversity of the human race, the diversity of the body of Christ. And it's reflected in your body. I'm not going to give you a medical lesson today, but you'd be amazed at how different parts of your body are. But they're designed that way, and yet it's one body functioning together. And so Jeremiah gives us insight into this tremendous heart. And I want to challenge you at the very start of the message. When was the last time you shed tears over the people of God? For some of you, I know it was yesterday, and having conversations with some of you. And I know that some of us are more emo, as it, as it were, than others. And I know I'm given to tears. I can break out tears just about any time. I'm good at that. I'm a good crier. And some of us not. So it's not the, the shedding per se of the tear that's the issue. But it's that genuine, heartfelt, God-sent emotion behind it. And that's the kind of, of, of God that we have. We'll turn back to Jeremiah, please. And we won't be able to read all the portions that I've listed for you here. 
But for those who've just joined us, what we've thought about doing this week is trying to give you an overview of the major prophets and a couple of minor prophets as a bonus towards the end of the week and give us a sense of the, the overall picture of a book. Yesterday, we looked at Isaiah, perhaps the most challenging of the major prophets, to see as a single message. But he really did have a single message. He made it very clear that our sin separates us from a holy and a righteous God, and the only means of salvation is through the Lord. And I know to us, that sounds pretty routine. But that is the gospel, isn't it? Hundreds of years, of, uh, thousands of years ago. And it would have been in dire contrast to what the thought of the day was. The greatest hindrance to the Lord's people in coming to salvation was not so much the gods of the, uh, the area, you know, the, the, the gods that we're going uh, to hear a little bit more about as we go through um, the, the prophets of Baal and what they did and Chemosh and all these other gods. That was an influence. You know what the greatest barrier, and still remains the greatest barrier for people to coming to Christ? Is their own ego. Is their own selves. And this is the story of the Old Testament, isn't it? The Lord had to have people realize, as Ken was describing so beautifully to us yesterday, not only the magnitude of our sin, but that we can't be the solution to our problem. I know that, that, that this is a simple concept, but I, I find this uh, uh, in my medical practice quite repeatedly. Where people say, look, I, I know that the body has healing power, and it does. Our, our, the Lord designed us in an incredible way. But sometimes it's hard for them to understand that despite the best lifestyle, the best diet, the best of everything, they can still have a disease. And we are not the solution to our own sin. We can't fix it ourselves. And we have this lesson repeated so frequently in the Old Testament. You'd think, why, why didn't they learn it? Well, you look at your own self and you'll understand why they had difficulty learning it. Because our egos will blind us to the truth and blind us because we think we can do it ourselves. I don't need God. We see this in even major leaders in the scriptures. Saul, we've often spoken about Saul. Saul's a perfect example of that. I don't think Saul was ever saved because Saul lived, if you will, independent of God. That's the problem with having a big head, you know? Head and shoulders above everybody else. He didn't need anybody else. He needed to come to a point where he was utterly and absolutely dependent on the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Today here we'll see with Jeremiah a similar notion. That now the nation thought, not just about themselves, but they thought that they could get away with their sin and maybe in partnership with the world, if we could only build a strong ally with Egypt, beware of those Egyptians, right? Um, Partner uh, with Egypt, then we would be okay and Babylon will never take us over. And Jeremiah was criticized heavily He was even made to sound like he wasn't a true Israeli patriot because he didn't want to align himself with Egypt. It's ironic he ended his life in Egypt, but nonetheless, he was standing for the truth of God and he made it clear, sadly, 
that their sin was going to lead them into captivity. But they didn't want to listen to Jeremiah. They wanted to listen to themselves. They wanted to listen to the worldly wisdom of what Egypt had to bring and said, well, if we just strategize and do this and we set up our troops here and there and you help us and we build a good political partner with you and we'll come to the implications of that. I'm not saying that we're not patriotic for the country that we have here or wherever country you come from. But let's remember that ultimately we're not of this world and we're citizens of a greater city. Talked to the young people last night just a little bit about Abraham. And they looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. That's my ultimate allegiance. Well, let's read a few verses to get a flavor of Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, the pre- of the priests that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the, Lord, uh, the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign, So timing-wise, we're now about 50 years after the death of Isaiah. It also came in the uh, the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. Now, the quick history lesson here, I know we did more history last year, but you remember that unfortunately in that time, remember Adam 4,000, Noah 3,000, Abraham 2,000, David 1,000. Now in these subsequent 600 years before the end of the Old Testament, 400 BC, critical things happened, including obviously uh, the creation of the kingdom and the splitting of the kingdom after Solomon into uh, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Judah was essentially uh, primarily uh, Judah and Benjamin, tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and Israel in the north, and that split occurred. And generally speaking, they functioned as almost two separate nations there afterwards. Sort of a, a picture to us of how we're really good at dividing. It's sad, isn't it? How well we divide ourselves. But nonetheless, uh, and there's some of the prophets focused on Israel, some focused on Judah. There were a few that, that toggled back between the two, but they were primarily separate. And Jeremiah is primarily prophesying to Judah. But there were two critical events that led to the not complete destruction, but the impairment of those two nations. The uh, Israel went into captivity, and then later on Judah went into captivity. So we have the Assyrian captivity in, in Israel and the Babylonian captivity with Judah. And Jeremiah bridges the captivity of Israel that's gone to now when we come to around 586 B.C., where there is the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, where the Lord takes his people into Babylon. Um, and there where we're going to learn of the stories of Daniel and others who were there who lived during the captivity. The captivity, of course, came to an end and people returned to the land. The, is, the captivity of the Assyrians taking Israel, in a sense, never really ended. Meaning there wasn't an, a return as there will be with the Babylonian captivity. Now, the interesting feature to this, of course, is that as we come into the New Testament, we read of Jews who, have, who come from the tribes of Israel. So it's not like the Lord forgot his people. And someday, as we know, ultimately, there's going to be a return from both of those captivities of the scattering of the Jewish nation around the world for them to be united again. But that's another conference in the future that we could discuss. 
So Jeremiah is in those, if you will, very last days where the, 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 the dark cloud of Babylon is starting to over, overwhelm Judah and they're not seeing it. And he's like, it's there, it's there. Listen to me. And they yet wouldn't listen to him. So that's why we see here that he prophesied unto the carrying away of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now he was allowed with some people to actually stay. They ultimately made their way down to Egypt, but he was there right until the carrying away of the captivity. Verse four, then the word of the Lord came unto me saying, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctify thee and I ordain thee a prophet unto the nations. And by the way, that's given us a lot of comfort, hasn't it? Over the years to know. The Lord knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And we could get into the medical uh, significance of this. And when is it that we are truly formed? Uh, The world wants to define the beginning of life in its own way. But I would suggest that we see the beginning of life of an individual, not physically at their birth, but even in the womb. Even in those earliest stages, you know, by eight weeks of pregnancy, all of your major organs are formed. They just need to literally grow larger. That's remarkable and sad in many respects how the world has not viewed it that way. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee. Whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Remember the theme we said about the prophets? Sometimes they don't fully understand what they're saying, what they're saying, but they know they're coming from the Lord. The Lord is literally saying, I'm going to use you as a mouthpiece. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy, in thy mouth. See, I have this day set uh, thee over the nations, and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down and to build and to plant. So here we have this justification, of course, of the degree of his prophetness, if you will, that he could literally speak on the behalf of God. Go down to chapter 2, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord and the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon him, saith the Lord. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, what iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain. Neither said they, uh, where is, is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits and a land of drought and shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt? They're not looking back and saying, isn't it wonderful what the Lord's done for us? It's one of the reasons why we meet weekly, don't we not? We're so prone to forget. We need a constant reminder of what the Lord has done on our behalf. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled the land and made mine heritage an abomination. The priest said not, where is the Lord? 
that they, uh, that, uh, and they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked not after the things that do not profit. So he's not just targeting the average Joe, common Israeli. Right up to the level of the priest. Remember we talked about the fact, the transition? We see the failure of the priests, and then the prophets come in. We see failure of the prophets. Then the kings come in. We see a failure of the kings. The Old Testament is designed to show us systematically the failure of the human race. So that you get to the end of Malachi and you say, who are these people? I mean, can't they do anything right? And then the Lord introduces the perfect man who cannot fail. It's marvelous. Even the overview, the structure of the Old Testament points this. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. You know, the Lord could have said, all right, I am so done with you. You've, you've created ways to fail, right? You are, are so good at failing. I'm just going to drop you like a stone and I'm going to turn to someone else. But that's not what he does. For pass over the isles of Chittim and see and send unto Kedar and consider diligently and see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord, because the Lord was going to deal with them. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. So they're not only rejecting the Lord, they're trying to find another means of salvation, of happiness, of success. And if you want to nap for uh, the next little while as, uh, uh, when I speak, take this message more than anything else. You can try these as described here uh, at the end of verse 13, broken cisterns. And I guarantee you that you'll never be satisfied. We talked to the young people last night, the fact that the Lord gives us something better than the world. That's a problem sometimes, particularly young people. We get the sense that, you know, the world's this amazing place. But if we kind of just hold off, we'll get something better later. No, we get something better now. And this two evils that he describes, they forsook the Lord. Not only did they push away the Lord, they embraced something that would never make them happy. And that's where the old hymn writer, I think, got that hymn when reading this verse says, Ah, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but all the waters failed. E'en as I stooped to drink, they mocked me as I wailed. Now none but Christ can satisfy, none other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus found in thee. Until you come to that point to realize that the Lord is the only one who's going to satisfy your soul. Everything you try to, to drink out of the world is going to be like a broken cistern. By the time you try and get the drink, uh, the water's gone. Oh, I'll try it over here. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, that didn't work. Only the Lord can give that to you. And so from the very start, the Lord is setting the standard amongst these people saying, you had your chance, but you failed. Come over to chapter three, uh, verse six. The Lord said unto me in the days of Josiah, the king, hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and every green tree and there hath played the harlot. Because, of course, 
that much of the worship of the gods of the area were in the high places. So very often when you read about the Lord's people going up to a high place, they were kind of going away from the Lord, trying to, to um, uh, turn uh, to, to the other gods. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn thou unto me, but she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw them, and, and, and I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went out and played the harlot also. So he's speaking to Judah saying, look, your brothers and sisters up there in Israel, they turned their back on the Lord and look what happened to them. They got taken away in captivity and they suffered because of it. You're not even learning from that. And here you are doing the exact same thing. Tragic as it was. Go over to chapter 6, verse 9. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall thoroughly glean the remnant of Israel as a vine. Turn back thine hand as a grape gatherer unto the baskets. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised. And they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. They they, they don't even want to listen. Can this happen to the Lord's people? Can you become so callous to the voice of the Lord that you literally block your ears up? You know, people joke about going, la, 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 I can't hear you. But sometimes isn't that literally what we do? We plug our ears and say, Lord, I'm not going to listen. Look what happens. It's tragic. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary with holding in. I will pour it out upon the children abroad and upon the assembly of young men together. For even the husband and the wife shall be taken the, uh, the aged and with him that is full of days. You know, Ken described to us beautifully yesterday in our relationship with the Lord. He is hurt by our rejection of him. Make, let me make this practical. What is the Lord trying to tell you in the last week, month, six months of your life that you're not listening to? In what area of your life is he speaking to you and you're doing this? And I want to hear it. It's going to have consequences. It's going to have real consequences. Uh, Come over for a minute to chapter 9, verse 1. Jeremiah, although of course speaking on the behalf of the Lord... And of course, carrying this, if you will, righteous anger was heartbroken over it. And these are, are some of the most tender words that you'll ever read of, of Jeremiah. Oh, that my head were, um, were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men that I might leave my people and go and go from them for they be all adulterers and assembly of the treacherous men. He was heartbroken for them. And it goes back to the question I asked you earlier. Do we just push aside those that aren't following the paths that we think they should? Or do we genuinely care for them? Jeremiah could have said, look, I'm done. When we come to talk about Ezekiel, you get asked to pray to a bunch of dead bones. I mean, that's not very good prognosis, right? But yet he did it because he cared for the Lord and the Lord's people. 
And let's come over to, to chapter 14. We won't read too many more of these, maybe just two more. Jeremiah 14. Because when he tried to bring the message to them, this is the response that he gets. 14, chapter 14, verse 13. Then said I, O Lord God, behold, the prophets say unto them, Ye shall not see the sword, neither shall ye have famine, but I will give you assured peace in the place. Right? So, so the people knew who to go to. Right? They wanted good news only. Right? They didn't want the truth. They just want to hear happy, jolly things. So they, they would hear things from the prophets like, you know, God's a God of love. He won't judge your sin. That's so archaic. That's so old school thinking. No, 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 no. You're the people of God. God loves you so much. It's all going to work out in the wash. We're not going to get hurt. We're not going to be taken into captivity. No, no, no. That could never happen. Then the Lord said unto me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination, a thing of naught and deceit of the heart. God didn't send these people. So what are we listening to? You know, the philosophy of the world would say, look, yeah, everybody do their own thing. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. You just do your own thing. In the end, there's no consequence. There's no real judgment of sin. You, you can live whatever lifestyle you want. You're the master of your own destiny. And that's literally what these false prophets were trying to tell God's people. You know, we've talked a lot this week about what are the hallmarks of a prophet of God. Perhaps the greatest hallmark of a false prophet is someone who minimizes the seriousness of sin. Minimizes the seriousness of sin. How serious is sin? Some of you have heard me give this example before, but I sometimes ask people the question, um, how many sins did it take to ravage this whole universe? Took one. Now, how many sins have you committed? Let me take a wild guess that it's more than one. I mean, it's almost incalculable, isn't it? Do you know how many universes Joe McHale single-handedly can destroy? It's ridiculous, isn't it? Just imagine the group of people we have here, however many there are of us, 150 or so. Can you just try and tally up with your computer for a minute the number of sins that are represented in this tiny little spot of the world? My Bible tells me that he carried every single one of them on the tree. Not half of them. Not a quarter of them. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Can you imagine the, the weight of that sin on the Lord Jesus? And we sin right, left and center and don't think it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And these prophets wouldn't want to admit it. Well, Looking at our, at our handout here, I've laid out most of these themes already, but let's quickly look through it. You know, the circumstances in the day of Jeremiah were not different than ours. There are all these political things going on. 
there were uh, really three big superpowers, right? So I, I don't know. I don't want to make it too much like today. I don't know if this would be uh, the United States, Russia, and China or something like that. But you've got Egypt, Babylon, and Assyria, and they're duking it out. And the nation is trying to figure out where they fit in the big picture. As I mentioned before, at one point, there was a, a movement uh, here in Jeremiah's time where they said, look, we should align ourselves with Egypt because Egypt is going to be our, our protector. Is salvation of Egypt or is salvation of the Lord? Their protection wasn't going to come from Egypt. And sure enough, Jeremiah was right at the end of the day. They aligned themselves politically with Egypt and then Egypt got spanked by Babylon. And so I don't want to get too much into politics, but we need to just be careful the degree to which Christians align themselves politically. Because we have, as we've said, another nation, another city of citizenship. The, the country was in spiritual decline. And of course, there was a lot of immorality because of the nations around. So I could argue that 2017 in the United States is a lot like the times of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah, as I've said, he exposed his heart in a way that really gave us a beautiful picture of his care for the Lord's people. And it led to a lot of problems for him. He was mocked. His life was threatened at times, but the Lord thankfully preserved him. But what six lessons can we learn from this book as we come to uh, the end of this message now? Lesson number one, political engagements with the world, as I've already mentioned already, is uh, dangerous. And, and I'm not saying by any means that, that Christians don't have the privilege or the right to vote or Christians can't be involved in a party. Uh, there are Christians that run for office. Uh, that's between them and the Lord. But in general, our political affiliation is with our king. And, and we just need to be careful. And um, I know there's a very sensitive topic, especially having grown up in Canada where political party system works a little bit different than it works here in the U.S. And I'm not trying to offend anyone from any political party. But I want us to recognize that our salvation, our solution, our protection, our ways in which we live our life for God is not the political aspirations we carry. And despite the fact we want to think of the United States as a Christian country, let me be pragmatic. There's no such thing as a Christian country, really. The only thing that can be a Christian is a person. And so, yes, I am inordinately grateful to live in this country because of the freedom of being able to speak out today. I can say unequivocally today, Jesus is Lord. And I know I'm not going to be thrown in prison for it here. And not, there are many countries in the world, if I tried to say that, I'd be in shackles by the afternoon. So please don't mistake my comments to feel that I'm not grateful for those who fought for the freedom of this country. Uh, God bless them for that. We owe them an incalculable debt. But at the end of the day, this country is changing and may become more and more difficult for us to pray, proclaim the gospel. So uh, theme number two, being subject to authority. And it's a similar kind of concept here. But, you know, he was almost viewed as a traitor by not politically aligning himself. You know, we have responsibility. We are subject to the authority of our leaders. You know, right now, obviously, there's a lot of discomfort with the political things happening in this country. But do you pray for our president? God asks us to. Do we pray for those who are in authority over us? 
we, we ought to pray for them and be subject to the laws of the land as they, as they do not contradict those of the Scripture, of course. But we need to be praying for them. Number three, sin made them so callous. Sin does that. Sin does a lot of bad things. But it gives that callous nature, that blocking of the ears. I want you to picture yourself doing that the next time. You know unequivocally you're doing something wrong. It's as if you're, you're trying to block your ears from God. And you know what? Like God can see that, right? You can't go anywhere on this planet where God isn't. We can't run away from him. Number four, importantly, sin has severe consequences. We won't take time to read it, but I've given you two references there from Second Chronicles and from Leviticus that warned us that if the, uh, the, the Lord had warned his people, if they did not follow him, if they did not give the land rest as they should have, they were going to go into captivity. And it's no surprise they're in captivity for 70 years to give that land rest for all of the Sabbath years they didn't give it. And sin has consequences. Sometimes there's no immediate consequence. Right, we see that in scriptures. Sometimes there was an immediate consequence and sometimes the consequence was delayed. Now, thank God that you and I never face the penalty of our sin because that's been removed. But we face consequences of sin, don't we? It's marvelous to me when believers come to the judgment seat of Christ. Sin isn't the issue there because that's been removed. It's, it's almost like every um, Old Testament believer who's made reference to in the New Testament, their sin is not mentioned. Even Lot, right? We don't read about Lot's sin in the New Testament as much as it vexed his righteous soul to be there. God has that ability to edit out our sin. But there are consequences. Consequences that affect you and your family and your assembly and your surrounding. Sin has that unfortunate power. The last two lessons here. Disobedience, despite tragic circumstances. You know, can you believe it? Even when everything was collapsing around them, even when it was clear that Egypt was failing, Babylon's at the door, do you think even in the last minute they would have called out to the Lord? No, they didn't. It's sad, isn't it? And of course, we can see this in the unbeliever. Who, who experiences what, what the Scripture sometimes describes as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, someone can be so callous to the truth over and over and over and over, the Lord says, that's it. You, you, you're never going to get saved. The Lord doesn't take delight in that, but you know what He does? He can turn that callousness into the opportunity for someone else to get saved. That's how much the Lord wants people to be saved. He'll even take someone's rejection of Himself what Romans would describe a vessel of wrath to, re, to bring other people to Christ. It's remarkable how that happened. Even Pharaoh's hardness, for example, led to the salvation of other individuals. Lastly, and we didn't get time to read a great deal, but maybe we'll, we'll close by just go to the very end of the book to go to chapter 52. Despite the fact that they were taken into captivity, it looked like everything was lost. It looked like there was going to be no hope for the future. We come here at the end of the book and we read this. And it came to pass in the 7 and 30th year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, in the 5 and 20th day of the month, that evil Mero, uh, sorry, uh, Merodach, by the way, when your name starts with evil, 
gives you a hint, okay? Just saying. King of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him forth out of prison, and spake kindly unto him, and set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon, and changed his prison garments, and he did continually eat bread before him all the days of his life. And for his diet, there was a continual diet given him of the king of Babylon every day, a portion until the day of his death, all the days of his life. Now we could talk about the implications of this and what's meant, but I like to end it there because there was going to be an end. They weren't going to be in prison, in captivity as it were, forever. And the Lord ultimately had a plan for his people. And of course, despite our circumstances and despite all the challenges that we might face, we've read to the end and we know we win, right? And despite all the political tensions of the world, all the spiritual decline of the world, all the social injustice of the world, just as it was in Jeremiah's day, as it is today, as we remain faithful to the Lord, the Lord has a plan for us. The Lord has a plan for us as a nation under God. But you know what? The Lord has a plan for you individually today. And that's what I want you to leave thinking of. God has a plan for you. Don't plug your ears. You see your brother, your sister failing, you encourage them. You you point them in the right direction. You show them the kind of compassion that the Lord Jesus showed at the Mount, the sort of compassion that Jeremiah had for his people. We'll learn more about that tonight when we read the book of Lamentations that really captures the emotion and the heart of Jeremiah like no other. God help us to be more faithful to him to the very end. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this opportunity again to study thy word, to think a little bit more together about the incredible patience of our God. And yet, Father, we also understand that sin has a consequence. That we can't just put it off forever and pretend it's not real. Help us to better understand the severity of our sin and help us not to be the ones that block our ears and offend our God. Bless us now, Father. We're so thankful that Ken is here too. Encourage him as he speaks to us shortly in his name. Amen.